The principle of zero-g flight is to throw the plane in the air and make it believe it is in vacuum. Hello and welcome to episode 180 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with... Jason Rabinowitz and Ian, where are you? Jason, I am in Bordeaux, France. Oh. Oh. I'm in Brooklyn. I have nothing interesting to say about that, but what have you (laughs) been doing? Well, sir, what have I been doing? Okay. So to start at the reason I'm sitting here in a hotel in Bordeaux, France, I yesterday flew on the Nova Space Air Zero G A310 alongside the German Aerospace Research Center for a set of 31 parabolic flights. And it was the most amazing experience I have ever had in the air. Not even close to the next most amazing experience by far, by far. I don't hate you, but I hate you for doing this without me. Because it sounds and looks from the videos I saw freaking amazing. It really is a special time. And uh, we've got a special show for you today. Not only did I get to go on the flight, which you can read about on our blog, I'll talk a little bit more about it in just a few seconds, but coming up in the show, I was able to speak with Jean-Francois Clavois, who is the chairman of Nova Space, the organization that runs the actual aircraft. He is a fascinating, fascinating guy. We scheduled about 15 minutes to chat, and we ended up talking for nearly an hour. Now, was this the conversation in which you divulged that bit of information about another potential aircraft they had in mind, or are we not even allowed to talk about that? No, no. We talked in depth about that. Ah, because I have not actually heard this yet. Yeah. But- Well, Jason will never hear it. Jason will never hear it because he doesn't listen to the podcast. I don't don't listen to podcasts. But this is- I might actually go back and listen to this segment because, spoiler, they almost ended up with a very different aircraft than what they operate today. Exactly. And not only did I talk with Jean-Francois and had a great conversation there, which you'll hear in a few minutes, but we also had a chance to talk with Bertrand Rameau, who is one of the eight pilots for the Nova Space A310. And he talked about what it's like to actually fly the aircraft and fly those parabolas. So we'll come to that in a bit. But I want to back up and talk about what happened beginning Saturday afternoon and how I got here, which was there are decisions that are made based on monetary ideas and logic that seems to make sense at the time. Everything seems like a great idea when you're clicking the book button. Right. And so what I did to get here, so so I'm in Bordeaux now and tomorrow I'm going to go up to Stockholm and by the time you listen to the podcast, I will be in the office in Stockholm having hit publish on the podcast button to send it out to you wonderful people listening wherever you are. So I said to myself, oh, I'm going to be in Europe. I might as well go to the office. I I should make an effort to go to the office and see some new folks and and we've got some meetings to have, so it's going to be good. So what I did is I booked, and I think we mentioned this briefly last week, I booked Chicago, New York, New York, Stockholm on Delta Airlines. And then I booked a a separate ticket of Stockholm, Paris, Paris, Bordeaux, Bordeaux, Paris, Paris, Stockholm on Air France. And so that 
concerned me for a variety of reasons. The first of which is, if anything happened to my Delta flight getting over here, there wasn't really any recourse to get me down to Bordeaux because it was a completely separate ticket. I would be relying on the good graces of Air France customer service agents at an outstation, no oh, less. Oh, yeah. The, the, the French are, are definitely known for bending the rules me, and, and getting you on a connecting flight when you don't deserve it. So that was the first risk. But as it turns out, I had nothing to worry about there. I actually got a quote unquote upgraded on my Delta flight from Chicago to New York because there was a, a family that was trying to sit together. So they moved me up to an empty seat in, what was it, Comfort Plus? Comfort, mm-hmm. whatever, the, whatever the, I guess, a little extra leg room on a CRJ 900 is. And so that was fine. Those seats, somebody tweeted at me, they're like, I'm so sorry, those are terrible seats. The actual seat is a terrible seat. And I was like, oh, how bad can it be? And then I sat in the seat and I was like, oh yeah, that's true. That's absolutely mm-hmm. true. They are terrible mm-hmm. seats. The seats on the CRJ 900s that Endeavor's operating, I, I guess it's the XJ registrations are these particular seats. I swear they're designed by a human being who has never sat down before. Yeah, they're not great. But I spent some time on a uh, similar CRJ, but a, a United Special CRJ 550 the other day. But I was nestled up in uh, first class after I paid for an upgrade just to try it out and quite comfy. Yeah. So I didn't get the the full luxury of, of first class on this particular flight, but I did get to sit in comfort plus. But the, the thing I was kind of bummed about is, is they moved me out of a window seat into Aww. an aisle. It was fine. But anyway, we landed, landed at JFK, took just a couple laps around, uh, took the bus from T2 to T4, took a couple laps around T4 and, and boarded the flight to Arlanda. And there happened to actually be a uh, Flight Radar 24 fan and, and podcast listener on the flight. I don't know if, if he wants me to publicize his, his Twitter handle or name. So I will just say it was great to meet you. I'm glad we got to meet up and, and thanks for coming by and, and saying hi. So flight to Arlanda on the Delta 767-300. Let's discuss for a moment what happened on that flight, which was the crew was very good. The plane itself was not. They had to reset the entertainment system six times. They had to reset the internet twice. Multiple economy class galley ovens were not working. So they delayed service an hour to serve everybody at once because they had to move some of the food up into the first class galley, but of course they serve the first class folks first. So they had to wait till, or Delta One, I'm sorry, Delta One folks first. So they had to wait until they were served so that they could then cook the economy class food. Yikes. I know we talked about this last week that we're starting to get shades of the American 767 fleet. Yeah. But it's hit or miss on Delta with the 767s. Some of them are kept up really well. They were just recently refurbished when they installed Premium Select. Your aircraft may not have had it. Do you, do you happen to recall? No, no. They, it, it had Premium it, it Select. Oh, yeah, that, the, that's the not aircraft, great. It was a well-refurbished But it's getting tired. Aircraft. But it's getting tired. Yeah, it, it's yeah. kind of the behind-the-scenes things. The only other thing that I, I wasn't particularly fond of throughout the flight was the level of turbulence involved. Normally, turbulence doesn't bother me. The problem was it was bad enough for long enough that they kept the seatbelt sign on. That's just Delta or any US-based airline. will keep it on the whole time. I was like, okay, that's, that's fine. But this is an eight-hour flight and I need to get up now. 
So anyway, we landed and landed early, no less. I made the transfer from Terminal 5 in Stockholm over to Terminal 2 via the airside bus, which was always fun to, to do in, in Stockholm because you get to see a whole bunch of, of carriers you're, you're not going to see. Heston Aviation, some uh, Amapola Flieg Fokker 50s, all sorts of good fun stuff. Go over. The terminal is empty. Terminal 2 is empty when I get there. There's no one else in the terminal. Not people who work there, not passengers. It is empty. And so for a minute, I think to myself, I'm like, am I in the wrong place? Am I supposed to be here? I'm not sure what's going on. And luckily enough, the Starbucks of all places was open. So I figure, okay, the, the terminal's actually open and I'm allowed uh, to be beacon here. Beacon of hope. Yeah, let's not go that far. Just a, a beacon of being open, which you know proved the point. So fly down on a delayed flight. The inbound was delayed coming up from Paris, so that flight was delayed. When the gate agent says, please do not break down the doors, you know things are going very well. Mm. Did anyone break down the door or were they compliant? No, they were compliant. Nobody broke down the doors. So that was good. good. Nobody on, on my flight, at least. It was the standard Air France massive boarding where everybody that's getting on the plane decides that they're going to boarding group who cares? I'm getting on now. Uh, so everybody rushes have, through the boarding gate and then stands boarding, on the jet bridge. Ah, yeah. you have oh, boarding, yeah, yeah. not boarding. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Uh, good, everybody good. rushes so some in. Things are, some things are, are, are back to normal. Yeah, it's perfectly normal. And then make it down to Bordeaux and everything works out because my Paris-Bordeaux flight was also delayed, which meant that I didn't have to, to hustle to make my flight. And then I got here and that was 21 hours of traveling, a 30-hour day arrived here and then Monday got to work getting ready to prep for the Zero-G flight, which included getting a, a flight suit, which was fun, and going through a lot of the safety briefings again, and then just kind of preparing for Tuesday's flight. And then Tuesday's flight was a very early start, and my start was early. The, the people who are on these flights performing their experiments, the plane is opened at 6 a.m. They can get to the plane as early as 6 a.m. to make sure that by 9 a.m. their experiments are ready to go and they work so hard. They're here a week before the flights preparing the experiments. It takes three to four days to load the experiments onto the aircraft. And again, you can go to the the blog to see pictures of some of these experiments and, and how they work and what these folks are doing. But a lot of them, the experiments can weigh up to 200 kilograms. And there are a few that weigh more than that because they were grandfathered in before the new sized down rules. The rule used to be 400 kilograms. So there are some big racks and some really cool stuff. One of them was the uh, space bike, which is a bicycle that is bolted to the aircraft floor. And the person has the person who's riding the bike has all sorts of electrodes and a brain scan helmet and all sorts of things attached to them. And then it's they actually pedal. the APU. Yeah. Yeah, they're actually the APU. They they pedal in microgravity. And so the experiment, the thing they're trying to figure out, and it's not about biking per se, but it's about the brain's control of the muscles in microgravity. How well do the muscles respond to the signals that the brain is sending? And the bike is the, as it was explained to me by the scientists who designed the experiment, basically the bike is the, the perfect method to study this because you've got up and down motion, you've got circular motion, you've got left and right. And so all of those things work together to give you a really good idea uh, of what's happening. So they can figure out what are the muscles responses 
to the brain in microgravity. And this is going towards studying, okay, we're, we're going to be living and working on the moon in the next decades. We're going to be going to Mars, living and working on Mars in the next few decades. What do astronauts need to do? How do they need to do things differently and, and things like that? Another really cool experiment was cool flame. So not like what? flames are cool, but like cool temperature flames. Like um, cool ranch? You, sure. Like cool ranch. How these flames propagate in microgravity. Wait, so, so there wasn't like an open flame on the aircraft close, it's as closed. you're in a parabolic dive with correct. microgravity? Yes, correct. Well, Man, it's a close you, flame. You, you but, had a much yes. better Tuesday than I did. I'll tell you that much. Well, I, I mean, at this point, probably. I mean, I'm not even gonna. I'm not even gonna dispute that. I'm still giddy about debate. the thing. And this is Wednesday, so that that experiment is just on the propagation of different fuels and different mixtures of oxygen-rich environments. Basically, if there's a fire in space, how best to put it out. Is this the kind of thing they want to know, but they're not willing to actually test in space on the space station because fire bad in space? Fire bad in space. So it's better to learn about how bad fire is not in space. Interesting. Yeah. And then another one that was on, on board was a refueling test. So basically, the supposition is that when we go to Mars, when we go to the moon, when we go beyond the moon, wherever we go, it might be Mars, it might be somewhere else, who knows, you're going to need to start refueling ships in space. And that presents a whole host of challenges because how do you make sure that the fuel that's in liquid form stays in liquid form as you transfer it to the other tank? And so they're experimenting with different mediums and, and how to do that and different pressurization techniques and, and all sorts of good fun stuff. So some really cool, really cool experiments on board. And the one that was kind of part of the, the space bike one, but was a little bit different, is they had a test subject jumping during the hypergravity. So what happens in the parabolic flights is that you're flying at level flight at 20,000 feet. And then you hear the countdown, one minute, 30 seconds, 20, 10, 5, 3, 2, 1, pull up. At the pull up, they pull back on the yoke and they pull up from level up to 50 degrees nose up. And so in those 20 some odd seconds, you are experiencing 1.8 Gs and you're being pressed into whatever you're either standing or sitting or lying on or whatever. So in that pull-up phase and then the subsequent pull-out phase on the back end of the weightlessness, those people were jumping. I tried to do it. Couldn't do it? I couldn't do it. Huh. I mean, I was in an elevator today that moved pretty fast. That's, I know that's more than 1G, but probably not as dramatic as, what was that, 1.8 Gs? One point, yeah, between 1.8 and 2, but the goal is 1.8. And so the, I thought that was amazingly impressive. But the insertion or injection into microgravity was, was such a weird experience that it's tough to describe because you're sitting in an airplane seat or you're laying on the floor or you're just standing up holding on to something. And then all of a sudden, you're just floating up in the air. And you've done nothing to do this. You haven't pushed off. You haven't done anything. You just start going up. And then for 22 seconds, 
the feeling of weightlessness takes you over and you just kind of float there and move around and you don't really have any control over like which way you're going unless you've pushed off of something. And then you hear the countdown and they pull up and all of a sudden you go from weightless to 1.8 Gs again really fast. I have nothing to add to this. It all sounds quite amazing. <laughs> that was such a weird feeling. The feeling of going from weightless to hypergravity in an instant again. That for me was the the weirdest thing. And I'm not ashamed to say that my digestive system and nervous system conspired against me a little bit. Uh-oh. Did you need the high-tech bag? I made use of the high-tech bag, very high-tech, super, super high-tech bag. But it went away and then I was able to to get back to work making video and film for the fine people at home. So it it all worked out. It was an amazing experience. And I think that having had that experience and learned about what the scientists are working on gives me a, a whole newfound respect for how they're doing it, having experienced that flight. With that, I want to shift over to our pair of interviews with Jean-Francois Clavois and Bertrand Rameau. We'll kind of do them back to back and play those for you now. And you can learn a little bit more about how it works and how they almost ended up with a very different aircraft. And then when we come back, Jason could pretend that I hadn't yet told him and we'll talk about it after we hear from Jean-Francois and Bertrand. So we'll be back after we talk with them. I spoke with Nova Space Chairman and former astronaut Jean-Francois Clairvois about the mechanics of parabolic flights, and he had a lot to say about that. But in the course of our conversation, I also learned that we came quite close to seeing a much different aircraft operating these flights. We're sitting in Bordeaux. The A310's behind you. There happens to be a Beluga sitting next to the A310. I know it's not here for that, but have you ever given any thought to like what the perfect aircraft for zero G would be? Like if you were starting this all over again and you had your choice of any aircraft. In fact, since we didn't get for a long time the answer from the German Air Force about the A310, Conrad Adenauer, which transported the Angela Merkel, this one. Right. Uh, we were pessimistic. And Airbus proposed to us to pay for the studies and the test flight to verify that the Airbus 380 could do it. And it, <laughs> and it was successful. Really? And we were supposed to announce at the Paris Air Show 2013 the partnership between Novespace and Airbus to continue zero-G flight for ESA, DLR, French Space Agency with their own Airbus 380, the number, I think the number two or the number three. Because they said, we have a program that justify, that, that we, have a, we have a need for this aircraft, but that's not big enough to justify to maintain it in flight conditions. Right. It was to, to arrange the top floor into a very luxurious apartment for Emiratis and, uh, you know. <laughs> but we need to find another use to to pay for the maintenance, uh, to contribute to the maintenance. So they told us, we will uh, organize a campaign for you, but you will have to combine two campaigns in one. It is so huge 
that the mid floor, I mean the, the main floor, you know, uh, you have the cargo and the two floor for passengers. The, the middle one is so huge, you could feel like three or four times what we have in this one. Uh, so they say in order to minimize, so it would have been a constraint for us because we would have been able, we would have been obliged to combine, to, to convince ISA, DLR to find dates where uh, they can fly together. Yeah. It's, it's feasible. Yeah. What, a, what was a bit frustrated for us is in that case, we would have not been our own operator because we would have not managed the training Yes, of the pilots, etc. And a, a month or two before the Paris Air Show, the one head of Airbus told our partner, uh, we consider that you, oh yeah, one other condition is, we will price Novespas just the same amount you would price if you had your own Airbus, like the 300 or the 310. And then somebody at Airbus said uh, it's uh, it's too kind for Novespas because it costs far, far more, especially for engines, etc. Yeah. So we he said let's within Airbus management they decided to review the price, the pricing offered to Novespas to see if they could maybe price a bit more than what they had promised at the uh. beginning. And in between, we received the answer from the German Air Force, okay. <laughs> because we had the head of CNES and the Minister of Defense talk to each other to find if it was possible, because DLR is a user, so DLR has an interest to, f to favor this uh, transfer. And in the meantime, we got uh, uh, a favorable answer from the German Air Force, who said, we are ready to not put in auction that Airbus 310, which was the original plan, and we will sell you at the market price. So give us a price. We will uh, we will see if it's uh, reasonable, and we we gave a price. They say okay, and uh, so we have it. So what is nice is this is our own. We operate and manage ourselves like a airline company. Uh, we are our own operator of uh, of the plane. Uh, so it's more flexible because we don't have to make agencies, uh, you know, agree together on the planning for when to fly, etc. So to answer your question again in short, <laughs> we have had the opportunity to look at uh, big aircraft, which would be actually interesting only for shooting movies where they need uh, big mock-ups. Mm. But when you fly people in uh, zero-G, it's dangerous to have a huge volume. Because the Eushin 76, which has a smaller floor surface than this one, has a high ceiling, more than four meters high. You need to assign one safety attendant per passenger, wow. ready to grab the foot. Because if you are at four meters when you will do the pullout, you will see during yeah. the pullout, you are maximum one or one and a half yeah. meter above floor. So you, so our plane is is good. I mean it's. Uh, Maybe we have only 220 meter ceiling height. So maybe 250 would have been ideal. Otherwise, it's, it's, it's fine. It's, it's okay, it's manageable. Uh, but Beluga, uh, <laughs> you know, we have looked at how to get a longer time, Concorde. Concorde would have given us one minute. 
if you use <laughs> if you use uh, you know post combustion yeah high high uh, angle of uh, pitch at each junction you can get one minute of zero g but of course concord is too expensive <laughs> and, uh, you know at the end of life there were some concord still able to fly right so we look at the Airbus 380 but uh, beluga would be definitely too big too so safety wise not manageable could you explain the the parabolic nature? Why can't okay. why can't you just fly and then dive? Why okay. why why oh, the why the parabola? Okay. So the principle of parabolic flight is to make the aircraft to insert the aircraft into an an Earth orbit. We demonstrate in physics that when you are outside a uniform sphere the gravity is the same whatever the size of the sphere. Mm -hmm. So if you are outside Earth, the gravity field is the same as if all Earth was there. Mm -hmm. So imagine a virtual ellipse orbit like, like this. This is, this is the arc of an actual Earth orbit. Mm -hmm. If there were no atmosphere, you would be in weightlessness here like when you are on an orbit around the Earth. So the principle of parabolic flight is to throw the aircraft in the air and make it follow this arc of an orbit at its apogee where velocities and attitudes are within the f qualified flight envelope of the plane given by the constructor Airbus. In order to maximize the time of weightlessness, we give the time of ascent and descent. When I throw this pen up, the time of weightlessness is the whole time. Because in physics, free fall doesn't necessarily start with a fall towards the floor. When you throw something in the air, it is called free fall in physics. Weightlessness is a state you are in when you are subject to gravity only. It's not the absence of gravity, it's when the only remaining force applied to an object is gravity and nothing else. When there is no surface, surface contact force. Mm -hmm. In our daily life, we are submitted to gravity, which is a volume force. It applies from a distance to any grain of matter of your body, inside, outside. All the other forces we face in our daily life are contact forces, surface, surface forces. So, an airplane, alors, why going up first is to double the time of weightlessness. I also spoke with Bertrand Rameau, one of Nova Space's eight pilots. We talked about what it takes to become a zero-g pilot and what it's actually like to fly all of those parabolas. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, really pleasure to, yeah. to sit and talk with you. And, and um, I'd start with a little housekeeping. Tell us uh, your name and, and what you what you do here at Nova Space. Yep, I'm uh, Bertrand Ramo. I'm one of the uh, zero-g pilots here at Nova Space in seven years. Uh, we operate this uh, Airbus A310. Uh, totally dedicated to this very special mission. And how did you become a 
zero G pilot for Nova Space. This is a, a very, I mean, there, there, there aren't many of you. So yeah, uh, how did so, you get here? Uh, we are seven right now, no, eight, uh, exactly eight. Uh, we introduced a brand new one uh, this summer. Um, basically, I joined the team when uh, Nova Space um, purchased this A310 after the 300B2B4. And uh, at this time, Nova Space has decided to operate uh, this aircraft by, the, by itself. Um, before that, it was operated by the French um, test center uh, from the Air Force. And uh, so when uh, Nova Space has decided to operate this aircraft by itself, uh, they um, call us uh, some specialists of the 310. So uh, I flew the 310 for more than 10 years in the French Air Force. I was instructor, examiner, etc. So uh, that's why uh, I was called at the very, very beginning of this story. Um, basically, the eight pilot, we are half pilot, are test pilot from uh, the industry, Airbus, HER, and uh, the French test center. Uh, and the other part, uh, we are standard civilian uh, airline pilot with a background of uh, with a different background uh, usually military background uh, so we know uh, we know a little bit more than uh, than usual how to uh, to make some aerobatics or something <laughs> like that so uh, we have a, a past uh, in the military and then uh, an experience in the in the in the airline or airline operation at least and uh, this mix creates uh, the condition for Nova Space to operate safely this aircraft uh, with uh, the both competencies, totally different competencies on one part the flight test uh, competencies and on another part um, how to operate an aircraft in a regulated environment. So how, how do you train you mentioned that there are distinct yeah. differences between being a regular commercial pilot on, on the A310 or any yeah. other aircraft yeah. and this. What, how, what's that training like? Uh, the training is uh, very, very specific for this, uh, for this operation. So we begin on the simulator just to learn not to fly the parabola, but to learn the music, so how we, we operate. We, because as probably you, you noticed this morning, uh, we divide the axes and we operate this aircraft very, in a very specific manner. So we need to to have a specific music uh, tempo of the parabola. So we learn this, uh, this tempo in the simulator. And in addition, we learn as well the uh, emergency situation. So the recovery of what, we, what can happen during this parabola. So we, we, we try to, we are trained on, uh, on the simulator uh, about this uh, special situation. Then we went to uh, an aerobatic light aircraft just just to uh, perform a couple of parabolas and and to to be uh, more uh, not efficient but the more uh, yeah to put your head down and uh, just for the to learn how his 50 degrees nose up how his 50 degrees nose down how the speed increase fast etc etc just for familiarization right and then we come here we have four flights dedicated flight without any passengers just us we go to the uh, over the sea and uh, and let's go. So you jump in the in a, a new world, uh, and, and that's it. So we perform more or less 40, 50 parabolas uh, just for training, and then uh, you join some uh, scientific uh, campaign or, uh, or uh, 
public flights and uh, you perform your first parabola with passengers on board and, uh, and you learn day after day, flight after flight, you need a uh, hundred thousand of parabolas to be a, to be a, a regular parabolic pilot. It's, uh, you, it's matter of uh, experience. Most of the best quality you have, you need experience for sure. So d describe for us what's happening on the flight deck as you go into the parabola and, and walk us through the whole parabola. Ah, the, so from the flight deck, first of all, we hide the windows to avoid some sun um, disturbance during the, the maneuver. When we climb or when we dive, uh, the sun moves and uh, we can have reflex uh, and uh, to avoid this condition, we put some some curtains on the lateral windows of the cockpit. So we are, it's, it's very dark inside the cockpit and we keep only the two front uh, windshield open and that's it. And then we work a three pilot at the same time. So that means we, we divide the axis. So we have the pitch axis. So it will be fly by the one in charge of the, of the accuracy of the parabola. So only push and pull. Focus on that, focus on the accelerometer to provide the best zero uh, possible. Uh, and that is only task. So to fly the pitch, to fly zero G. On the second part of the aircraft, you have the pilot who is responsible for the, for the lateral axis, for the roll. So we put two uh, small, um, uh, small, uh, lines, wires on, on, the, on, the, on the yoke just to avoid uh, some disturbance on the pitch. And we fly the, we fly the aircraft like this. We keep the roll more or less at zero during all the maneuver. This pilot is responsible as well of the music, uh, of the tempo of the parabola. And the third one is in the middle, sit down on the, on the jump seat and is responsible for the thrust, thrust of the engine to set up the full thrust for, to, for the entry in the parabola and to uh, set the good thrust during the parabola to obtain the best uh, zero G on all axes uh, during, the, during the maneuver. And so let's go to inside this parabola. Uh, the G pilot, the pitch pilot will pull 1.8 G during 20 seconds to uh, reach 50 degrees nose up. Then at the call out injection, we will push on the on the yoke and to reach the zero g that's the most difficult part of the parabola it's to pass from 1.8 g to zero and not uh, 0 0.1 but 0 0.0001 so uh, that's our target and during the 22 seconds of the parabola we keep this uh, this uh, accuracy of the zero g and then when we reach 50 degrees north down uh, you have to become again an aircraft and uh, you pull out 1.5 at the beginning and then 1.8 and to recover the situation and to come back at the departure point. And let's do that 31 times. Very good. Is um, when, you're, when you're performing in the maneuvers in the simulator for the first time, obviously you're not feeling that gravity I know that the simulator is uh, basically uh, so. Then, no when G. when you get to the when you get to the G, how long does it take to get used to that feeling while you're operating the aircraft? Because I sat in the aircraft, yeah. feeling it, yeah, 
thinking the entire time, there's no way I could fly an aircraft while feeling this. Uh, it's totally different in the cockpit because you know what will happen. Uh, you know exactly what will happen. Okay, the first time you feel the, the pressure on your body uh, at 1.8 G and you feel the, the zero gravity uh, the, uh, at your first injection. But really when you are in control, when you are at control of the aircraft, you cannot feel it. You don't feel anything because you are so focused on your task. You cannot uh, think about what's happened and 22 seconds is very short. And so you are so focused on the on the on the flight fly this maneuver, you I don't see you cannot feel, but uh, it's well behind. So you mm. think well after the the maneuver, you will feel oh, oh, what happened? Yeah, I feel my body, etc. But during the maneuver, no, it's impossible. You are so focused, you, you cannot imagine it's uh, you. You are looking at your instrument and you are focused on your instrument and, and that's it. Everything can happen, uh, anything can happen uh, around you. You are so focused. Is there anything about the flight tech that's been modified specifically no. for this uh, aircraft? There is no major modification in this aircraft. The only modification we introduce in this HV-10 is uh, the accelerometers, the way to display the information in the cockpit. So we get some two screen with a accelerometer in two different scales. One large scale to fly the pull up and pull out, the 1.8 G, and one very, very uh, accurate scale uh, to fly the, the maneuver by, the, by itself. Uh, part of that, and of course the cabin. The cabin is, is totally modified to, to remove the seats, put some foam everywhere and to uh, to provide electricity and air to uh, for the science. Does it fly any differently than the yeah. A310 that has I don't know, it's a, it's a very standard 310. When we fly, uh, when we, we ferry this aircraft from uh, Bordeaux to somewhere else, it's, uh, it's a, a very standard A310, mm -hmm. um, brand new A310. How is the maintenance because of the Call it high pressure um, of the wings and the, the structure. So uh, with Airbus, we we have carried out a big study on the aircraft, and we have uh, divided the aircraft. Or some parts uh, have a life cycle different than uh, a standard operation. Mm -hmm. So that means we have some beta factors on uh, on the engine. For example, one parabola is one cycle. So that means uh, okay. it's equal to one landing, one takeoff. Okay. Every every parabola, so that means this morning, 31 parabola plus one takeoff, one landing means 32 cycles on the engine. Wow. So that means 32 Oof. flights. Okay. So it's a lot. And for other parts, in, uh, we have some beta factor of uh, one parabola, uh, five cycles. So we shorten the, the life cycle of some parts, very dedicated parts with... Uh, uh, it, it was an Airbus study and, uh, and we trust them on, on their job, so it's to, to ensure uh, we have a safe aircraft uh, at any time. So more or less, we have the same maintenance than an airline. If this aircraft fly most, more or less 10 to 15 hours per day. So, but we fly only 35 flights a year and but we have the yeah really we have the more or less the same uh, maintenance schedules and uh, a standard airline who operates this aircraft uh, daily 
very interesting. Yeah. Over maintenance for sure, yeah. but that's the, the price to pay to to get this aircraft. Sure. To be sure, the aircraft is always uh, in good condition for this uh, mm -hmm. repetitive maneuver because we are in the certified envelope of the aircraft. Zero is in the middle of uh, of the flight envelope, a certified flight envelope of, the, of any aircraft. The only thing who changed is the repetitive action to stay 20 seconds in at zero and the repetitive action of 1.8 G, which is impossible on a, on a standard airline. Okay, Jason, what universe would we be living in if they had gone through with that plan? I mean... An A380 0G aircraft, I mean, logistically, that probably would have been an absolute nightmare. Just not only just having to deal with all of the issues that come along with flying an A380 somewhere, but then operating it like as a parabolic aircraft. Would you have different people experiencing weightlessness on the different decks of the aircraft? How would that even work? So the plan, as I understand it, was to just convert the main deck to parabolic flight setup. And what they would have done is they would have combined, and Jean-Francois kind of mentioned this, they would have combined the different campaigns. Because right now, Nova Space runs campaigns. The one that I was just on was managed by the German Aerospace Research Center, the DLR. And they also run campaigns for Kness, which is the French space agency. And they run campaigns for ESA, the European Space Agency. So they do different campaigns throughout the year. Here, they would have consolidated their campaigns because they have such a large aircraft. To make it financially feasible, they would have had to consolidate these campaigns. And, and that creates all sort of logistical problems in its own right. But the most interesting thing here, as far as this AvGeek is concerned, is that there are rumors, and I haven't been able to track this down, but there are rumors that video of the parabolic test flight that they performed exists. So it is now my life's mission to track down this video, if in fact it does exist. So if you are listening to this podcast and you know anything about a video showing the A380 in parabolic flight, please email us, podcast at fr24.com. And I'm going to look into, into this a lot more because this has taken me down a, a path of fascinating research that I'm, I'm thrilled to, to go down. And I would like to subscribe to your newsletter and learn more. It's funny because I often send out our weekly newsletter and then you mention things that are in the newsletter as if you haven't read the newsletter. So I look maybe at it sometimes. You, maybe you should subscribe to the newsletter. Hey, oh, I subscribe. Plug. This is an accidental ad. We have a weekly Freight Later 24 newsletter. The newsletter includes things like what's in the podcast this week, and what else happened in aviation, and some of the best aviation photography. So if you're not subscribed to the newsletter, you can find the show notes and click on the link that we have put there linking you to the newsletter, or you can go to flightradar24.com and click on social and click newsletter. There, accidental ad complete. Perfect. What else happened this week in aviation? I think it all happened today. A lot of stuff today, like moments before we started recording, which is very odd because usually it's moments after. But things are happening in Russia. Some airlines are ordering some planes. Some are actually returning some planes unexpectedly. But the big news out of Aeroflot is that, well, they need aircraft. And there's only one place they can really get them from, and that would be within Russia. 
And today they announced a very large order for 339 domestically produced aircraft from UAC. That would be 210 MS-21, 89 Superjet New, which I don't know what that is. I guess it's a play on Neo or something, whatever they've done to the Superjet to make it domestically produced completely. I guess that's what that is. And then 40 TU-214. They'll all be coming from 2023 to 2030, or maybe later, or maybe never. Who knows with what's going on in Russia. But some people speculated that this means they're going to return aircraft and they need to backfill. I would argue that that's absolutely not going to happen. It's probably just they realize like everyone else does that at some point the Western aircraft that they've stolen will no longer be flight worthy and they can't support them anymore. So they are fully aware they need to build and deploy their own aircraft. And that seems to be what Aeroflot's doing. So the days of Aeroflot, I guess, being a modern Western aircraft fleeted airline is seemingly on the horizon of ending. The whole thing is just surreal. It is. And they turned up the rhetoric a bit. And I'll quote here from, I don't care, whoever, whatever dingus in Russia is writing this press release, but Boeing and Airbus, which are unlikely to ever be delivered to Russia again, will be replaced by Russian-made aircraft. MC-21 will be the flagship of the Aeroflot fleet. Sure, why not? I guess it will be the default flagship of Aeroflot because everything else is going to be grounded at some point. Yeah, I, I mean, you, you kind gotta of pick run something, out of options, right? Yeah, <laughs> you got you, you got to pick something. Why not the MC twenty one? Why not? Reminder: the M, M the is it the MC? No, it's MC twenty one. Sorry, not MS twenty one. I guess I got that wrong. But yeah, that aircraft's not certified yet, is it? It's on its way. So almost, you know, it's all. It's almost assumes there. that they'll eventually certify it. Yeah, it was almost there, but not not quite. And then you mentioned they're giving back planes. I did. Are they trying to get rid of the old super jets? Are they like, here, interjet, take them? No, suddenly they really need those. Ah. But it appears that this comes from Flight Global, that the Russian government's actually granted the S7 group permission to return a pair of least 73 Maxes because they were never certified to operate in Russia from the outset. So they were able to get them to agree to export them to Turkey, interestingly enough. So that's an interesting twist. I look forward to Steve Giordano's trip to Turkey to pick them up. Yes. That's uh, – <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting – now remind me, they, they were delivered to S7. Was the MAX ever certified for flight in Russia or certified after the grounding? My, my, it, I'm a little fuzzy never, on the timeline there. It was never, never recertified. Right. There you go. So S7 said, hey, we have these aircraft that we, we actually can't fly because they are not certified here. And I guess that's just proof that – Russia has no intention on, I guess, ever certifying the MAX for flight in Russia. I mean, to be perfectly honest, I would be a lot more surprised if Russia certified the MAX out of spite just yeah. so they could keep the planes. <laughs> that seems like a lot of work to go through. Yeah, but things are certainly shaping up in Russia to be drastically different than they were just like three months ago. It hasn't even been that long, but a lot of changes coming to Aeroflot. Up, not by choice. Well, I mean, yeah. no one at Aeroflot <laughs> wants this. That's fair. That's fair. Okay. So Russia ordered planes. They're giving some planes back. And then Israel's banning planes. Yeah. I saw this last I, I week. And then, and then you, you listed this and remind me what's going on here, sir. Well, apparently 
Israel doesn't like four-engined aircraft anymore, which is quite surprising because I'm pretty sure there are some cargo or freight airlines operating out of Tel Aviv, which is surprising. But this comes from dandeals.com of all places, written by Dan himself. He says, the Israel Airports Authority, IAA, has announced that effective March 31st of next year, planes with four engines are banned from landing in Israel, and that'd be commercial aircraft. So your 747s, passenger or freighter, A340, A380s. Yeah, none of those aircraft, I believe, are scheduled, at least passenger-wise, to operate to Israel. But that doesn't exclude it from happening in the future. I know Lufthansa has done that before, especially with the 340. But there are freighters that fly to Israel. So I'm really confused at why they would do this. Now, they cite issues of sustainability, environmentalism, and noise concerns. But not even France has even talked about something like this before. I don't know what to make of this. I mean, it seems weird that they would do this now and without any publicity campaign around it. Like, because if it was a sustainability thing, they would be like, look, we're banning four engined aircraft because they're less sustainable than two engined aircraft, which may or may not be true, depending on a whole host of economic and flight factors. Same thing on the noise side. If you put an A380 over your head and then immediately pass out with one of like United's elderly domestic 777s, that two engine aircraft is going to be a hell of a lot louder than the A380. So speaking of A380s, the first thing that comes to mind is that Emirates recently began regular service to Ah, Tel Aviv. That is mentioned in the article. Oh, okay. There you go. I mean, did they talk any more about that? Because one thing that comes to mind is it prevents Emirates from bringing the A380 into Tel Aviv. It's suspected that that could be it. Could be a factor. That's quite a dramatic protectionism move if that is the case when they could just say, we no longer accept A380s here because of space constraints or operational constraints or whatever. And pretty much only Emirates would be affected by that. But this is, they've gone the extreme method here of just banning all four engine aircraft. I, I wondering if this is actually going to become a thing or if this is kind of just blustering. Maybe they do it, maybe they don't, but we'll keep an eye on it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we'll, we'll see how it all ends up. We've got Finnair as well today announcing that they've needed to figure out a new way forward with the Russian invasion of Ukraine and then the lack of availability of Russian airspace to Finnair. Their whole business model, their whole long haul business model was Helsinki is closer to East Asia through Russian airspace than any other airline. Whoops. We'll get you there faster and we'll get you there nicely. And now they can't do that. So what they're doing is they're reducing the number of aircraft in their fleet. They're going to fly fewer routes and they're going to fly to more Middle East and India destinations. And they're also saying that they're going to reduce unit costs and they're going to to right-size their fleet, their staff, make sure everyone's contributing to cost reductions. They didn't really mention how all of that is going to take place. But assuming it's the case, there will be a new Finnair. I know that there was a lot of concern initially that the impact to Finnair was besides the Russian airlines themselves, the impact to Finnair would be the biggest 
because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I should say, besides the Russian and the Ukrainian airlines, that Finnair would be would be most impacted. So they're figuring it out. We'll we'll see if it works for them. But they've announced their plans. Let's see if they can stick to it and, and make things work. Yeah, I think they announced specifically that they'd be removing a pair of A350s and then A330, maybe the other way around as well from the fleet. So there are some uh, long haul fleet reductions as well. Oh, yeah, we didn't list this, but speaking of long haul fleet reductions, this comes from our chief short answer correspondent slash chief mergers and acquisitions correspondent, Ned Russell, who was reporting on SAS's bankruptcy proceedings earlier this week. And that airline, SAS, is getting rid of a pair of A350s and a few A330s, one of which I saw before Ned's reporting, I saw in Stockholm all buttoned up. So they had the engines, they had plastic over so there. They're the already ready to go. The engines. They are ready to go into storage and hopefully be returned to the lesser when that may or may not be approved by the judge, but I, I assume it will be. So at least five wide-body aircraft, I think two A350s and, and three A330s leaving the SAS fleet in the near future. Yeah. So a couple more things, actually two more off-agenda mm. items I'm going to go with because you know I'm, I'm scrolling through Ned's Twitter feed. He's at by E. Russell on Twitter. And there's a couple things I forgot about here. So Blue Air announced a couple of days ago that they're suspending operations at least for probably about a week. But if you've been in this industry long enough, you, you kind of know that when an airline suspends flights because of monetary reasons, they often don't come back. They're not a small airline. They have a, a sizable fleet, I think, of a couple dozen aircraft potentially, yeah, some 737 MAX. Maybe it's actually smaller than that, maybe half a dozen, but it's never great to see an airline suspend operations like that because more often than not, they don't come back. And other airlines have already filled the void. Ned reported that Wizz Air kind of swooped in real quick and has added five more aircraft to its base in Bucharest, launching three new routes and adding frequencies on 30 more. So that's kind of exactly what happens when a small carrier like this takes a bit of a, a pause due to some sort of issues. Another airline's going to swoop in and fill that void, and Blue Air might not return. I hope they do, but might not happen. Yeah, we'll know as of September 12th whether or not they're back in action. I will say that there's, what is it, like maybe a, a 30% return rate for first time suspending operations? Yeah. But if they ever great. do it again, it's just not coming back. Yeah. They have 14 aircraft, by the way, five 737 MAX 8. Six eight hundreds, a seven hundred, and a couple five hundreds. They've got more Max eights on order, ready to be delivered, but not great. I got one more thing. This is just kind of funny. And before we come, before we get our last thing, so before you might we do remember, our last hurrah. okay? Yeah, before you might remember last year, United re-entered the JFK market years after really making a bad mistake by leaving JFK and consolidating at Newark. And it was big fanfare, 767s with Polaris. And they were only able to do that temporarily during COVID when overall air traffic dipped real low. Now it seems they can't get permanent slots at JFK. And now they are threatening that they might end service at JFK in October unless the FAA does something. And that's something that United is suggesting would be lifting the cap on flights or, or lifting the slot restrictions. So, so United can get its fair shake at JFK. And they cite all sorts of things that happened in recent years, like taxiway widening and high-speed taxiways off runways. But 
anyone who's actually been to JFK in the last few years knows that, yeah, there have been improvements, but when push comes to shove and the weather isn't perfect, JFK is just as bad as it's ever been with your line of 45 aircraft waiting to depart at 8 p.m. So it seems like a real bluff from United that, hey, if you don't do this industry-changing thing at JFK, we're just going to pack up and go back to Newark. I hope that doesn't happen. I like having Newark at JFK, but this seems like a real shot in the dark here. I mean, given all of the commenting that United has done about Newark, it's a real smack in the face to hear them turn around and be like, well, you should give us special treatment at JFK. No. Buy your slots like anyone else. Yeah. I mean, do they expect the FAA to play ball or is this just kind of like a really good poor marketing. I like I'm very confused as to why they would go this route. But I don't know. I mean buy yourself a time machine, go back to twenty fifteen and get back those twenty four slots they leased out to Delta, which they can't get back. Uh, yeah, that yeah, seems yeah. like the only way to go. Good luck. Good luck. Okay. Now it is time for what is accidentally not breaking news, but not many people have talked about it yet. It's Weird, really weird. So our friend of the show, John Ostrow, every now and then tweets out, stand by for news. And the airline industry kind of stops and waits and refreshes to see what he's saying. And usually it's something really good. And he's been quiet on this one. And everyone else was quiet. This has been published for a day and a half here. And really no one picked up on it until just about 30 minutes ago. But AIN published a piece about Boom, and the title is just as Boom Seeks Engines, Airlines Mole Supersonic Use Case, and they really buried the lead. And that lead would be Rolls-Royce is not going to build their engine for them. That is a rented and excavator. It's in the third very paragraph. very large hole. And then Put the lead I'm sorry, down it's there in, and it's in the fourth it over. paragraph. And the quote from Rolls is a kind of I don't know. I'm just going to read it. Uh, Quoting here, we've completed our contract with Boom and delivered various engineering studies for their Overture supersonic program. After careful consideration, Rolls-Royce has determined that the commercial aviation supersonic market is not currently a priority for us and therefore will not pursue further work on the program at this time. They go on to say, it has been a pleasure to work with the Boom team and we wish them every success in the future. Wow. I mean, that sounds nice, but that basically is Rolls-Royce telling Boom to get lost. Well, I mean, what what it says to me, yeah, what it says to me is if you have a few billion dollars handy that you want to pay us to build you a specific engine, we are happy to do so. And they might. But there's no way we're going to spend our own money building you an engine. Who knows what the investing ecosystem has in store for the future. Maybe they can come up with the billions. I don't know. But as it stands now, Rolls-Royce will not be developing an engine for Boom's Overture aircraft. And I don't see anyone else stepping up to the plate here to take a shot at that. So that 2025 first flight was, it seems, exceedingly, even more than usual, unlikely, or no, not unlikely, seemingly more impossible than usual. Yeah. I I mean... Even if you believe that Boom has a chance at success, at developing an engine, developing an airframe, testing it, putting it into the air, 
I don't think anyone is under the impression, at this point at least, that the timeline that the company has used is an accurate one of their capabilities and a realistic one of their processes and probability of making first flight. I just don't see that happening. Yeah, that's the thing. If Boom had come out with a more realistic timeline, I'd be much more willing to give them, in my eyes, the credibility that they might deserve. But to stick with this deadline of three years from now having a first flight despite not having an engine even in development, that, that's crazy. And it's kind of disrespectful to the industry that everyone knows better. It's not possible to do that. I don't know. But at this point, all we know is we know who will not build the engine. And we are absolutely no closer to knowing who will, if anyone, build that engine. Yeah. The response by Boom to this, which I, I don't think has come out yet, will be very interesting to read. Yeah. Looking that, forward to uh, it. Haven't, haven't seen anything yet. That's all I'll say there. But this has been uh, episode uh, 180 of AvTalk. We, I mean, I have had a rather enjoyable week, a maddening week getting here, but a thrilling and and satisfying and uplifting week being yeah, come here. On, come on home. Your family misses you probably. Not only for... <laughs> they finally let me out of the house. Not only for what it was, but I mean, the thing that I liked most about the flight was not the actual flight itself, though that was beyond amazing. But the thing I liked most about it was hearing afterwards the scientists talk about their successful experiments because they put so much work into designing these experiments, designing the physical structures to put on the aircraft. Then they have to do, like I was just there taking video and pictures and floating around for a few minutes. They're on this three-hour flight in hypergravity to microgravity to hypergravity again 31 times while running equipment and experiments. And to me, that was just absolutely incredible. And to hear them talk about it and see the look in their eyes when they've gotten data was just the coolest thing in the world. So I will leave it at that. Episode 180 of AFTALK from Bordeaux and from New York. We will be back home next week with a much less up and down episode, I promise. <laughs> I get it. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you next week. As always, I am Ian Pechnik here, as always, with Jason Rubinowitz. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.